and it appears Flight Lieutenant Harry Burton had some fun. Hello and welcome to For You The War Is Over, a podcast all about Second World War, Prisoner War Escapes, hosted by me, Dave. And me, Tony. And in this episode, we're covering a rather marvellous man. If I say that he was Air Marshal Sir Harry Burton, KCB, CBE and DSO, that's his official title at the end. Obviously, he wasn't that when he did this escape. He went on to do lots of interesting things. Mm. So he was born in May 1919 in Glen in Scotland and was educated at Glasgow High School. And he went straight from high school into the RAF in 1937. Learned to fly at number 10 flying training school and was posted to a bomber squadron initially, pre-war, 215. And then he was followed up by going to 149 squadron in Mildenhall in Suffolk in the early part of 1940. Now, that was interesting for me because we've done a lot of 1940 mm-hmm. captures and things like that around Dunkirk and the British Expeditionary Force. We talked a little bit about fighter command. We've never really covered bomber command. Bomber command actually played quite a big role in the Battle of Britain. Obviously, credit is given to fighter command because it was obviously very much on the defensive. But actually, bomber command played quite a big role. And Arthur Harris, certainly post-war, said that whilst very rightfully credit was given to fighter command, more credit should have been given to bomber command. So covering a little bit about what that was about, I think Bomber Command was actually quite badly handled during the early part of the war. There was no real direct strategy of what to do. I mean, obviously they'd looked at the advancing Axis forces coming across Europe and were preparing for the defensive element of it, but there was never really any sort of set role for offensive. So initially... The idea was that somebody within the powers that be would go, right, we need to bomb aircraft factories because we need to stop them producing aircraft. And then they go, oh, actually, no, now we need to start bombing the oil refineries because we want to hit their fuel supply. And oh, actually, no, we need to start hitting their means of getting transport around and train lines and the infrastructure within actual Europe. And it kept on changing. And that was one literally every couple of weeks. Somebody would say, no, we need to do this. No, we need to do that. Bomber command was not particularly big didn't have particularly fantastic aircraft you know we had blending mm. light bombers we had some hamdens which were literally called the flying pencil exactly what it looks like and we had wellingtons that were all a bit floppy but could take a bit more of a bomb load a long way but basically at the time the main push was to go for military targets and military targets only the argument between the authorities was that a military target was only useful to hit if you could actually wipe it out and particularly at that time the bombing aids were particularly useless so you either had to do it in daylight which meant high losses. We had to do it at night on a completely clear moonless night because we didn't have navigational aids to help, which meant that there was high levels of inaccuracy and a loss of the military infrastructure was so far spread that even if you did miss, there was actually no damage around it to anything else that was particularly useful. And if you start looking through a lot of the commands that were being given out at the time, there was some talk of saying, don't ever come back with your bombs on board, you know, find something else to drop them on. Where this changed, and it's very pertinent to this particular mission, was in September 1940, because I think we've covered previously about the accidental bombing by the Germans of London Mm -hmm. uh, in the later part of August, which then meant that there was a retaliation by Bomber Command to go hit Berlin. The day 
of this particular shootdown and the mission that happened was when the Germans changed tactics between the bombing of the RAF infrastructure to try and hit fighter command and the indiscriminate bombing of London, which effectively then led into Bomber Command changing their plan again Mm -hmm. to say, right, we're going to start hitting cities and infrastructure. So it was a very difficult time, I think, for Bomber Command and those that were involved. But yeah, Harry was on one of these bombing raids of of an interesting target in the Black Forest. I tried to find out exactly what they were trying to hit on that particular night. But if you put Black Forest bomb or bombing into the internet, you come up with a rather lovely pudding and not not the actual raid that they were on. So we've got to go by what he puts on here. So this is the evening of the Thursday, the 6th of September 1940. And he is the pilot of a Wellington bomber flying from RAF Mildenhall. Uh, And he says, about 20, 30 hours on the evening of Thursday, the 6th of September, in a Wellington aircraft on a raid to burn the Black Forest. Now, I can't particularly understand why firebombing a forest. I was trying to see if there were particular targets of interest. Couldn't really find any Mm. in that particular area. I don't know if it was trying to hit wood supplies, but obviously Germany's got an awful lot of wood reserves and tree reserves. So I can't quite understand why they would have deliberately set a mission to go and firebomb the Black Forest. But he says, we did our job and on the way back did a reconnaissance of some lights on the ground coming under fire from heavy flak. As far as I know, we were not hit. But about 10 minutes after, the port engine started to show signs of heating up and a little later it seized up altogether. After that, we threw out everything to lighten the plane, sent out an SOS, which was received by our home station. And from then on, we lost height until I had to give the order to abandon the aircraft, which we all managed to do safely. Just before the wireless operator left the aircraft, he received a message giving our position in code, but there was no time to decipher it as we were too low. Before jumping, we had all seen what we took to be the Belgian coast. After my crew, namely Pilot Officer Smith, Pilot Officer McFarlane, Sergeant Bailey, Sergeant Peacock and Sergeant Barnes had bailed out, I destroyed the secret wireless identification device and then left the aircraft, landing in a swamp where I immediately hid my parachute. I had to wait until daylight before I could get out of the swamp. Now we've seen that on a number of times before of people getting rid of their safety equipment. I came across a river and decided to follow it towards the sea. I had a small compass with me. Not a stud compass, he adds. The first person I saw was a farmer driving some cows. I presumed he was either French or Belgian, but I waded into the river and hid. I walked for another two miles down this river, still in my flying kit, until I found a good hiding place on the bank in some bushes. I lay there all day. When it got sufficiently dark again, I followed the river and passed through an orchard where I got some apples. Bit of thieving of apples. We like Mm, that. Scrumping. Scrumping. Excellent. I also found some sugar beet and some corn. Found it, and I guess took it. (laughs) I then found another hiding place and stayed there for the following day. When preparing for the next night's walk, I found I had lost my compass. Then I followed the river again for another night, until there were so many guarded bridges and main roads crossing it that I thought it better to try and get west across country. I lay down in a dike and was awakened, though not observed, by a troop of German cavalry. I followed this dike until I came to a clump of bushes, and there a German sentry stepped out. I had blacked the buttons of my uniform with mud, good idea, Mm -hmm. and wore a scarf hanging over my wings so he did not realise who I was at first. He questioned me for a little time and then realising what I was, called out the remainder of the guard who escorted me to a fort a couple of kilometres away. I was then taken before a German officer. He did not question me but turned a German sentry out of his bed for me to sleep in. Excellent. Yes, he needed a good night's rest after several nights on the on the run there. At 0800 hours the next morning, I was taken in an army van to Latouquet, where I was handed over to the Luftwaffe authorities, then stationed at a hotel there. 
I noticed during my drive to the 2K that all the orchards outside the town were full of German transport. I had breakfast with two German majors of the Luftwaffe, one of whom spoke a little English. After breakfast, I was taken in a staff car up to saint Omar, at this time which was the headquarters of one of the Luftwaffe groups. We passed an aerodrome on the south side of the town with Messerschmitt 110s in it. Now that's quite a fast, nippy aeroplane of the time. Mm. Twin-engined. Same aeroplane that Rudolf Hess took to fly to, to Scotland. So a tasty little bit of military intelligence there. Yeah, nice little bit. Because mm. we are quite early in the war here. Mm-hmm. I was interrogated there merely as regards number, name and rank. I filled in a Red Cross card. We've seen that before, haven't we? We have, yeah. For the information on my parents, but ignored the section dealing with service particulars. So early signs of that notorious form that we've uh, seen before. Yeah, and it's also not unknown that they would fill in details of parents or next of kin on the off chance that it wasn't a fake. Yeah. It was kind of felt that that was a relatively risk-free additional bit of information because, of course, it could be several weeks or even months before they were even in a position to have the opportunity to write a letter to a wife a parent a mother a father oh completely and so if they felt that they had an opportunity through the red cross to get information to their parents and or next of kin they often took it so that is an additional bit of intel that they possibly shouldn't have given but let's face it he's only 21 at the time Mm. i was taken from there in the late afternoon in an army transport with two sentries to brussels arriving late at night at the civilian airport and i was put into the cells I found my second pilot in the same cell. I could also hear my navigator McFarlane in another cell and my wireless operator Barnes. We were very careful not to discuss anything of importance. I was there for one night and received quite good treatment. The next day after lunch, we went in a motor horse box to Cologne. We were again accommodated civilian aerodrome at Cologne and received quite good treatment. The next day we went from train from Cologne to Frankfurt with two German NCOs and on arrival at the station, we were met by a staff car and taken to the prison camp at Dulag Luft. On my arrival, we were taken past the camp up to some small white houses where each one of us was put into a separate room. Shortly afterwards, the Germans asked us to fill in a larger Red Cross form, which again had some space left for number, location and other particulars, but they did not insist on us completing this. A German major came and visited us but did not try to interrogate us and was very friendly. We stayed there until the afternoon of the following day when we were taken down to the main camp. So it's it's a bit unclear as to what the mission was. A forest is not traditionally an industrial region in that sense. I mean, sure, there's logging, but that's not really going to be war critical in the sense of ball bearings or or aircraft factory or crude oil production. So bombing the forest does seem an interesting mission to have to partake. I mean, there's a little bit of hydroelectric dams in that region. Yeah, there are. But I mean, I didn't know whether it was to sort of take up infrastructure. I mean, if you start bombing forest i mean it's september it's the Mm -hmm. end of the summer we all know that 1940 was a particularly dry summer maybe it was to use up manpower but i don't get it i mean the germans were still very much preparing for the invasion of britain at the time so an awful lot of infrastructure would be being directed towards the coastal ports in particular now obviously we'd been bombing various military strategic targets including ports and including factories and ore depots and things like that i couldn't find anything of particular interest within the black forest at the time and whilst even if there had been a fixed target i'm sure he'd listed it but he does talk about the firebombing of the forest which mm-hmm. i just find bizarre for me though i don't know whether it was to tie up people 
I think what what we can say is it was a very interesting time for strategy in bomber command. And, Mm. you know, you try and hit the ports to stop the potential invasion fleet. You try and hit the airfields to try and limit the Luftwaffe. But they had nearly 400 airfields in France and Belgium Mm. that they were launching attacks from. So knocking out the odd airfield here and there is not going to make a massive bit of difference. Mm -hmm. Hitting the factories, yes. But then all they were to do is keep on moving the factories further east because you can move aeroplanes around once you've built them Mm -hmm. in Germany. But our limited machinery that we had at the time, if it meant that they moved further east, then it wasn't actually going to have that much of, a, a, mm-hmm. of an effect. If anything, you wanted to potentially damage factories more to interrupt production, but not to the extent that it wasn't viable to rebuild it where it was, and then go and hit it again a few weeks later. If you wiped it out totally, they'd just go and build it in another place. But what a forest gives a strategic interest, I'm afraid I'm perplexed. Correct. No, that's fair. And interestingly enough, upon being shot down, he he managed to try and evade for a couple of days. Yeah, so Um, a few nights on the run. Bit of scrumping, as you say. He's no bicycle, though, sadly. No, but he does show a certain mindset whereby he was certainly not about to give himself up. He was going to make an effort, and it does hint towards someone who would be a keen escaper. I mean, he was captured after a couple of days, but he was not someone who was desperate to hang around in a prison camp for too long. No, no. So having arrived in Dulag Luft and been interrogated, he was then released into the main camp, which was pretty common. Not unusual to spend a couple of weeks in the main camp itself before being moved on to a permanent camp. And while he was there, he was warned, as were the rest of his crew, by one of the senior officers not to attempt to escape because Dulag Luft was only a reception camp and any attempt to break out would curtail the privileges enjoyed by the permanent inmates. That in and of itself does ring true. Because Dulag Luft was staffed by permanent staff from among the British prisoners of war. It was a slightly controversial role to take up. There was a feeling amongst the number of prisoners of war who went through there that they had a bit of a A, cushy number, and B, unwilling to rock the boat and make things difficult for the Germans as a result. Mm-hmm. And there, that is to some extent corroborated by this statement in which he's warned not to attempt to escape. But at the same time, Dulag Luft was there to serve a purpose, to properly process any aircrew who were captured as prisoners of war. And while it was also an interrogation centre, it was also the location at which they were processed properly with things like the Red Cross as well, so that if they wanted to receive Red Cross parcels or get communication back to their families, as we've already alluded to, mm-hmm. it, they did need to go through proper process, and Dulag Luf was the location where that happened, and part of the working of that camp was done by this permanent staff of British prisoners of war. And making things more difficult for them was not necessarily in the interest of the body of prisoners of war as a whole. Yeah. Absolutely. But I think it probably is also a not unreasonable criticism that they had formed a bit of a clique, got themselves a cushy number, and were certainly not keen for others to come along and ruin that for them. And one thing he does say that's quite interesting, which does reinforce the point I've just made about the importance of Dulag Luft, is even as early as September 1940, so we're talking about only four months after the end of the Phony War here, Yes, they're already receiving a regular supply of Red Cross parcels. The food supply in Dulag Luft is steady, regular, and he says the food was very good. Now, that does give some indication of the importance and the permanence of Dulag Luft and the role it played in the overall system for organising, coordinating and processing aircrew prisoners of war as a whole. 
Now, while they were there, and this, as I said, they were there for several weeks, they were free to go for walks and go and play football and stuff like that, but they had to give their parole not to escape. Mm-hmm. Now, most did, actually, and were willing to do so for a number of reasons, not least of which was it was common practice, and so if everyone else was doing it, why shouldn't I? Certainly, Barton says that the paper which we had to sign agreeing to our parole only covered the period of our walk, so it didn't stop them thinking about escape or attempting escape under different conditions. And as they were only there temporarily, it made sense for them to make use of the system that was in place there for everyone's use. Absolutely. So he certainly wasn't unwilling to give his parole under certain circumstances. Nonetheless, Barton, it turns out, wasn't there for too long, because having arrived on the 11th of September, on the 16th of September, a party of 60 officers and men, including Barton, left Frankfurt by rail on a troop train, and from there they were taken via Berlin onwards to Barth, where Stadlow 1 was located. Now, we have covered Barth before. We have, yeah. Now, he does say that on the journey there, on the train, several people attempted to escape, including four who tried between Stralsund and Barth itself. But all these attempts were unsuccessful. Now, on arrival at the camp, they were turned into the compound and searchlights were turned upon them. They were counted and then put into a reception hut which was wired off from everything else, as in from the rest of the camp. And so it was in a compound of its own. Now, they assumed that they would be processed and put into the main camp itself the following day, but they actually ended up remaining in the reception hut. And they were told that the reason for being kept there was because there was no room in the camp until some French pilots had left. Now, the huts they were in were wired up from microphones, undoubtedly for the Germans to listen into their conversations. But squadron leader Stevenson put them on their guard against talking and organised the party very efficiently so that they would be less likely to be caught out saying anything untoward. Now, inevitably, upon arrival, they were, of course, searched, having already been searched when they were captured as well. And Barton says that the next day we were taken and searched going in twos or threes at the time. The search was not very thorough and my second pilot managed to conceal a small compass in his sock, which really does suggest it wasn't very thorough. No. But, of course, getting a compass through a search is fairly important if you're planning to escape. Absolutely. And Barton actually states, Luckily for him, the Germans only asked him to take off his right shoe and sock and the compass was concealed in the left. So much for German efficiency. And immediately after the search, they were put into the camp itself. Now, a fair amount of Barton's escape report covers detail on the camp and the routine of the camp and what was available to them and all this sort of detail, as well as information on his escape itself. And this actually stood out to me quite significantly, because while we see it periodically, to me, reading this escape report, it was clear that Barton was someone who was of interest to MI9. Okay. So anyway, the first thing that he details is the camp routine in Barth itself. Now, like pretty much every prisoner war, he starts with food, because they were always hungry. And having read what they were fed, I'm not surprised. Oh, really? Is there a Sats coffee coming back? It is indeed. The daily fare consisted of a cup of coffee for breakfast, a bowl of watery soup with some kind of vegetable for lunch, sometimes with a very small piece of meat floating in it. Mm. It doesn't really sell it, does it? No. Three or four potatoes cooked in their skins... And the skins came with mud as well. Again, oh, beautiful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Bit of roughage, roughage, as my dad used to say. <laughs> and then one fifth of a loaf of black bread, a cube of margarine, and another cup of coffee for supper. Which is not exactly the most filling of days. He also states that twice a week they received a slice of sausage and they also received a cup of soup made from milk or oatmeal two nights a week as well. And then on Sundays, they got two spoonfuls of sugar and two spoonfuls of jam. 
So clearly the Germans felt that they should get an extra treat on Sunday for their day off. And to sum up, he says that the food was always cold and unpalatable by the time we got it as the cooks lived some distance away. Now, as well as the food, he also talks about the camp routine itself. So, of course, there was blackout, so shutters were opened one hour after daylight. Roll call during the winter was at 8.30 in the morning, during the summer 9.30 in the morning, and then was held in the hut during the winter and outside during the summer, except when the weather was bad. Now, interestingly, he does say that the officer in charge was an Austrian, and although an ardent Nazi, was actually quite decent. And then they were left alone until about 6 o'clock at night, or two hours before sunset when they had evening roll call. Now, ordinarily, I don't go. I don't really go into too much detail about you know things like camp routine, the food. You know, yeah. we sometimes touch upon it because it's it's relevant and you know gives you an idea of life within the camp. And of course, we did the episode with Midge Gillies on camp life. Absolutely. And so, if anyone does want to hear more about what life in the camp was like, it was first episode of series three. I believe it was. Yes. Yeah. So we we have covered that in greater depth elsewhere, and please do go back and give it a listen if you want to learn more. But the reason why I'm going into more detail with him is, as I said, he's clearly a man that is of interest to MI9, who of course compiled this escape report. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm looking into it in a bit more detail to pull out what it was they were interested in. So he also talks about parcels, and we, as we've already covered Red Cross parcels to a greater or less extent not so long ago in Dulagluft. But he does say that in his first five months in Germany he only received two Red Cross parcels. Now that is very low, you know, one every two and a half months. Typically you're getting one a fortnight or something mm. like that. It was much more common. So that does give an idea of A, how efficient Dulag Luft was in receiving its Red Cross parcels so early in the war and how crucial the role of that camp within the overall system was that they had clearly prioritised that. But also on the flip side it shows how poorly he is receiving the Red Cross parcels, the fact that he's only had two in five months. Now he does say that later on parcels arrived a little more frequently and during April and May he received about two parcels every three or four weeks. Now that is better but not still not quite at the regularity that we see possibly a little bit later in the war. True, but I mean... Sort of they, 42 they, onwards. They would have had to have put the infrastructure in. I mean you mm-hmm. think of the speed that the Germans accelerated across particularly the low countries. I imagine the infrastructure that needed to be set up and the routines and the channels and the checks and everything else that obviously they wanted to carry out mm-hmm. would have taken time. So we're still only talking early 1941 here, aren't mm-hmm. we? Yeah, absolutely. Late 1940 even. Now there's a comment that he makes which I thought was very interesting because he says, as far as we were concerned, as in the prisoners of war, contraband could have been put in the parcels as they were not searched very thoroughly. Mm. Now we know that does change later on, but... That seems quite a pointed comment for a prisoner of war, a returned prisoner of war, to make directly to MI9. Nonetheless, we also know that MI9 studiously avoided going through Red Cross parcels to smuggle in contraband. Because it would have potentially jeopardised that route of sustenance that was quite obviously and clearly needed by people in these camps, bearing in mind what they were being given yeah. to eat. I mean, not just for survival, but also for escape. So there was a, two reasons for them to not want to jeopardise Red Cross. And again, if people do want to learn a bit more about how MI9 went about smuggling in contraband into the camps, please do go back and listen to our episode with Helen Fry Absolutely. on MI9. Now, the next interesting comment he makes is Squadron Leader Stevenson gave out information to be sent home in coded letters. That is interesting because that yes. would indicate that he had some form of training and integration with Had MI9. been trained in the coded letter system that yeah. was sent back to MI9. The camp leader, at first squadron leader Padden and later squadron leader Stevenson, arranged for officers who could speak German to try and get information to be sent home in code from the sentries. 
there was always ample time for writing code. So clearly, Barton is saying, I wrote coded letters here. Yeah. I mean, he is very clearly trying to indicate that he was involved in this, he was experienced in it, and he knew precisely what he was doing, and alerting MI9 to the fact that he had been involved in coded letters, which again, played a crucially important part in gathering, disseminating, and sending back out of escape intelligence and other forms of intelligence that was needed by the prisoners of war. The only instance of a stool pigeon was a Yugoslav officer who was openly anti-British, which doesn't seem like a very good stool pigeon to me. No. And as we were all at very close quarters, he was bound to have seen some of our gadgets. Oh. Again, flagging up gadgetry, escape toys, if you like, Mm. with MI9. And he then says, although we did our best to keep things from him. They were allowed German newspapers, a magazine called The Camp, and Lord Haw Haw on the wireless. Oh, wonderful. Excellent. What Lucky a, them. Wonderful thing to look forward to. However, on the flip side, they found out which rooms the microphones were hidden in, connected them up to the flex, and blew them out. Oh, And he also plan. says they were not renewed. So clearly, the Germans just kind of thought, well, fine. Tried that. Yep, Never gave mind. that a go, didn't work. Ah, I bet they got feedback off of it, which was why they realised there was something in there. Nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, nice. So like they clearly it. had a bit of fun here. And finally, he says that the morale of the prisoners of war was very high. Fanshawe was commanding officer of the escape organisation and Barton was the commanding officer for maps within the escape organisation. Excellent. Very important roles. Indeed. Now, this is where, if you like, with the coded letters and the parcels and the reference to contraband within the parcels and gadgets and all that sort of stuff, my suspicions that he was a prisoner of war and escaper of interest to MI9 were confirmed when he gives direct feedback on the escape equipment that was most required within the camp. Because he says, and I quote, Maps of the Baltic coast, the only map which came through in a games parcel addressed to Flight Officer Knight, was of the route from Salzburg to Moistrana. This route was too far away to be of much use to anyone. Maps, saws and files were wanted. Compasses are not necessary as we make compasses from the loudspeakers in the camp. That this to me is, first of all, evidence that MI9 contraband was making it through to the prisoners of war mm-hmm. at Barth. But second of all, evidence that Barton was very aware of the work of MI9, which would suggest that he wasn't, you know, the, the things like the coded letters, the contraband, etc., the references that he's already made, is effectively corroborated here because he is now giving direct feedback to MI9 as to the form of contraband that that camp would like. Yeah. Normally that was done through coded letters. Now they have an actual prisoner of war from that camp saying, this is what we want. And he was in the escape committee. Excellent. Crucially important pointers to the link between MI9, escapers, escape committees, and prisoners of war within the camp. Absolutely. And at a very interesting time of the war, basically. Mm-hmm. Now there's one other interesting comment, which is not particularly relevant to MI9, but is just an interesting comment, as he says that all Irish prisoners of war in the camp were taken away and questioned separately from the rest of us. The Germans asked them where they came from and if they belonged to any party or organisation in Ireland. Now we have again covered this before, but just to quickly recap, Ireland itself was of course neutral, had some, in 1940, 1941, recent political differences of opinion with the British, I think it would be fair to say. I think that's a very fair thing to say. And the Germans absolutely identified them as a potential route for recruitments into the German army. And so far as I'm aware, very, very few took it up. Most 
rejected it outright. And while many very much identified themselves as Irish and not British, they had taken the decision to serve in the British Army or the British services, and therefore, as far as they were concerned, that is to whom they were loyal. Hmm. And therefore, they had absolutely no intention of being recruited by the Germans. It's just an interesting little comment that Barton has put in here. He makes no other comment beyond that, but it is interesting to know, with the benefit of history and hindsight, what actually happened to this two-sentence reference to the Irish, because they do play quite an interesting role within the context of prisoners of war, escapes, and the overall geopolitical narrative of the time. Now, having talked about what the prisoner of war morale was like, he also gives some intel and feedback on the German morale, stating that the man who repaired the windows said that the German civilian morale was very low as they were fed up with the food situation, while with regards to the bombing, the German accountancy officer who had gone to Hamburg for a fortnight's leave in March 1941 said that he had spent 10 nights out of the 14 in the air raid shelters, which does suggest that... Certainly by March 1941, what you were saying about how Bomber Command was fairly disparate and not very well connected up, certainly within a couple of months they had... Sorted it out. Yes, indeed. So, on to Burton's escape itself. So, having been working on a tunnel for a while, this tunnel was discovered and Burton was sentenced to five days solitary confinement for his efforts on the tunnel escape. Now, as there were only two cells for officers in the camp he thought that he would have another couple of weeks before he would be put in. So he started working on all his preparations, getting ready maps, the route he had to cover, getting food hidden and a compass, as he was planning to make for the Sashnitz Ferry. Now, the Sashnitz Ferry went directly over to Sweden. It did. So that was his plan of escape. We have seen an escape attempt that went over the Sashnitz Ferry in the episode with Campbell and Kelleher in the previous series. So we know it was possible. However, Barton says that unfortunately a sentry suddenly came in and told him that he was to start serving his sentence immediately, which, having put in a lot of effort to prepare an escape kit, meant that he essentially had a couple of seconds, maybe a few minutes at best, to pull it all together, get it hidden on his person and be taken down to solitary confinement. And because of that, he says that he only managed to get hold of a map and two bars of chocolate in the time he had available. So having been put in solitary confinement, in his cell at night he worked at the bars, which were screwed into the wooden walls from the outside. Now he did have a table knife to work with, so he was clearly trying to unscrew the bars that were attached to the window. It took him five nights of doing this, and on the fifth night, which was also his last night, he managed to undo all the bars completely. So he took them all off, undid some of the screws of the cell window, where pilot officer Newman was also imprisoned in the cell next to him. Having made his escape, he's now trying to help someone else make an escape or at least muck things around for the Germans. Potentially even throw them off the scent a bit if they see that a second cell has been tampered with. So he then crawled across the intermediate space and made for the main gates. Having reached the main gates, he then excavated under the first gate with a piece of metal that he had picked up and then crawled to the second gate. He had left the cell at 2300 hours on the 27th of May and left the camp at 0230 hours in the morning. Wow, three and a half hours Yeah, to get underneath the gate. Yeah. So having got out of the camp, he then walked until he reached the railway line on the west side of Bath. He was dressed in the service trousers which he dyed black and a battle dress tunic. He also had a blanket with him in which he wrapped his chocolate bars, a shaving tackle, a towel and a pack of cards. So his escape kit consists of clothes, blanket, food, toiletries and pack of cards. There's a couple of things I find quite interesting about this. 
One is his carrying of toiletries, given that he's planning to go cross-country. Now, we've talked a lot about carrying towel and shaving kit for those who are dressing and travelling on trains, acting as businessmen or Absolutely. or, yeah. or travellers, and the need to assimilate by shaving. I don't recall ever coming across someone who's planning to go cross-country, hard arsing as they called it. Yeah who has also taken a shaving kit with them. Now, I grant you, it probably would have made him look less like a tramp, but I don't recall ever coming across this before. No. So that does stand out a little bit. The second point I wondered about was the pack of cards. Yeah, I was going to say that. I mean, was he going to try and gamble his way across for tickets? Or? Well, no, I, there's two theories that I have, Go neither on. of which I can prove. Of course. One, he is travelling alone. And having some form of entertainment, particularly when you're trying to kill hours, that is also silent, has the potential to decrease the boredom. When you're hiding up during the day, you might be hiding in the forest or something like that. If you're bored, you might be tempted to go off and explore, see what's around, just something to do mm. to kill the time until it's nighttime again. If you have a pack of cards, you can at least play solitaire. Yeah, that's true. The other theory I have, and this returns back to the very clear links and interest that MI9 have in him, is, is this a pack of MI9 cards that had maps on them? Interesting. I cannot prove it. He makes no other reference to the pack of cards whatsoever, but we do know that MI9 did smuggle in packs of cards that had water-soluble glue on the backs that when you threw them in a bucket of water, they would detach, and then you had basically a map of the area on the back of the packs of cards. That's really interesting. So I just wonder if that is what this pack of cards is. Mm, I like that. It's a theory. They're good theories. Mm. It's also not impossible, it's both. Yeah. There's no reason he couldn't have taken a pack of cards that had a soluble map on the back. Yeah. That was also there for solitaire. Indeed. Everyone's a winner. <laughs> so having reached the railway line, he then travelled towards Stralsund until he reached some woods close to the railway about five kilometres east of Barth. Having reached that woods, he then laid up for the day. The following night, he set off again following the track which was on his map towards the town of Stralsund, so he clearly hasn't got that far just yet. And despite some rain, he was able to get hold of some water from a lake that was about three miles from Stralsund, and he filled up a beer bottle which he'd found with some water. Now that's quite important because he makes a, a specific point of saying my physical condition was quite good. Now that is crucially important when you're doing cross-country. You can possibly get away with not being at your peak physical condition if you're getting a train, but if you are walking cross-country, it is important you're in good physical condition with access to water. Absolutely. Not just rainwater, which has the negative effect of making you very wet and cold. Indeed. Around about four o'clock in the morning, the following night, he was still following the railway line right the way through the town of Stralsund and he actually walked down the main platform of the station. Ballsy. <laughs> yes, indeed. And he even goes on to say that there was a large marshalling yard there full of trucks. So that sounds like a nice plum bombing target <laughs> that he's feeding back in there. And then he carried on down the railway line to a bridge further down the line. Now he reached this at about oh three thirty hours the following morning just as it was beginning to get light and despite that he decided to carry on crossing the bridge rather than turn back and try and find somewhere to hide. After he'd walked about 20 yards onto the bridge he noticed the sentry on the left hand side who had seen him but, and there was no chance of him turning back. So he took the decision to carry on and cross the remaining quarter of a mile of the bridge, passing five sentries on the way across and greeted them with a Gooden Morgan. Ballsy again. Very ballsy. Wow. I'm impressed. Mm -hmm. And not a single one stopped to even question what he was doing there. No. At daybreak. Utterly accepted his presence at 3.30 in the morning crossing a bridge on a railway line. Hats off to the man. Yeah. 
He laid up in a small wood close to the railway line again the following day. So he reached Sashnitz about three o'clock in the morning on the following morning. And in effect, he's actually walked the length of the train line from Barth to Sashnitz. So that's a distance of about 80 kilometres covered in three or four days or so, mm. which is actually not bad going. 20 kilometres a night. That's yeah, it's not bad going. Pretty good on, on foot. So having reached his target of Sashnitz, he says that after washing, I walked down into the town wearing an open neck shirt and my service slacks. He had discarded his jacket by this stage. During my walk through the town I passed many German soldiers. I studied the harbour very closely, went down onto the beach, had a bathe and a sunbath for the remainder of the afternoon, watching the ships which left the harbour in order to discover what time the Swedish boat left. He returned to a wood that he'd stayed in the previous night, again that evening, and discovered that the Swedish ferry left at 16.30 hours in the afternoon. So the next day at 15.30 hours, he went down to the docks and walked past the sentry, who took no notice of him. There's a lot of luck playing into this escape. So what he's been doing on his first days since arriving in Sashnitz, it's quite clever what he's doing. He's, again, assimilating into the local population. But he's also learning the lay of the land and studying the harbour movements without actually going into the harbour. So he's gone down to the beach, he's had a sunbathe, he's gone into the water to clean himself. So he's doing relatively normal things, but he's using that to monitor harbour movements, to Mm. work out what it is. And if he's specifically looking for a ferry, he's using that to identify what time that leaves so that he can go the next day to catch that ferry it's brilliant it's it's very clever the way he's using his first day there now there were quite a few sentries walking around but he headed down to the swedish ship and found it was completely surrounded by barbed wire so unable to get there directly he says that the alternative methods of getting on board were a going through the entrance reserved for passengers or b going through the entrance where the trucks were taken on board which was also well guarded Now, having spent the day monitoring movements, he says that the only possible way seemed to me by going on the trucks. So having studied them for some time, I found out which trucks were being loaded and going onto the ferry. And while they were loading the trucks, I went round to the other side and got in below a truck and hung onto the axle. Oh, I wondered if he was going to go underneath. Now, this particular truck was an express mail van. And at about 16.15 hours, the trucks were pulled on board. He then sat on the deck of the ship underneath the truck, where he stayed until the ship had been at sea for an hour, and then he climbed inside the mail van to have a look at what was inside. Interesting. Yes. (laughs) And it appears Flight Lieutenant Harry Barton had some fun. Oh my word. He says the contents consisted mostly of express luggage to Sweden, though there were quite a few articles addressed to Germans in Oslo. So I therefore pulled the labels and addresses off the German articles and left the rest. (laughs) So effectively any mail that was heading towards the German occupiers in Norway got tampered with and presumably never reached it. Excellent. Yeah. But anyone in Sweden was perfectly okay. Absolutely fine. So when the ship reached Trelleborg, he again hung onto the underside of the truck and travelled off in the same manner. The journey took four hours in total and he landed at 20-30 hours on the 31st of May at Trelleborg. He then gave himself up to the Swedish police who took him along to the police station where he spent five days there and then went on to Stockholm where he was to stay for six weeks. So he arrived in Sweden four days after escaping, nearly nine months after his initial capture and arrived in the UK on the 20th of July 1941. Which is, it's still a relatively early escape, Yes. Uh, hence the amount of information for MI9, but you think potentially there was MI9 at play with his with well, his escape. Certainly it's clear from the escape report that MI9 were very interested in him. Now, there are a number of claims around Harry Barton and his escape. I've certainly seen a claim that he was the first escaper. That to is, get home. To get home. That is definitely not the case. 
There were many escapers who escaped from marching columns in 1940 and were able to get home relatively quickly. So there were plenty of escapers, in the broadest sense of the word, who got back before Harry Burton. I've also seen it claimed that he was the first officer to escape, and that's not the case either. There was plenty of officers who were amongst those who escaped sooner than Harry Burton. We've covered Basil Embry, for example, who was certainly an officer and was one of those who escaped from a marching column in 1940. Absolutely. And we think he was actually probably the highest ranking captured individual at the time. Yes, absolutely. When we we covered it, which is, you know, Dunkirk sort of period. So So the other two claims that I've seen is that he was either the first to escape from a prisoner of war camp or the first to escape from Germany. Now, these are harder to prove or disprove. Mm -hmm. And so I, I wouldn't want to say that that's definitely not the case. What I can definitely say is he was certainly one of the earliest to escape from a prisoner of war camp. Now, I specify a prisoner of war camp. There were temporary camps that were thrown up. And prisons that people were kept in on their way to camps and things like that. Exactly. But I suspect that what people are referencing is the Stalag system. What we now think of as the prisoner war camp system as a whole, whether that be sandy with terror guards and barbed wire or the cold that's tight, you know, whatever our imagination goes to when we say prisoner war camp, I think that's what people are referring to. And certainly he would have been very early Mm. in escaping from that as I say, the prisoner war camp system as a whole. Hence why I think MI9 were very interested in him, because he would have been relatively senior. As a flight lieutenant, he's a relatively junior officer, but he's still an officer, so he's relatively senior in the grander scheme of things. He's certainly been inside a prisoner war camp, which is why I think he's giving so much detail on things like camp routine, morale amongst the prisoners of war. They will have had coded letters, certainly, and he makes reference to that extensively. But that's not the same as being able to sit down and chat for hours on end to a prisoner of war who has been in the camp and got back. So I think MI9 showed a great deal of interest in them because he was someone who had been inside a camp, had made a successful escape and got back from within a camp. Whether he was the very first, it is harder to prove because there are certainly others who have escaped from camps at this point. So there's niches and caveats within all of this which makes it hard to prove, but he's certainly very early on in the process and he's certainly of interest to the powers that be because of that. We can certainly confirm that about him. That's interesting because, yes, he's got back, he's given his report. It's interesting that he actually went on to have significant service. And the fact that you mentioned about him talking about his experience is, is one of the main things that happened because he was awarded the DSO for his escape and he was promoted to a squadron leader. But he actually spent the majority of the rest of the war actually lecturing air crews throughout Britain on escape and evasion mm-hmm. and what he had learnt from it, which actually awarded him the MBE as well for his work there. It wasn't until much later that he was actually made officer commanding of 242 Squadron and then 238 Squadron, but he didn't actually return to flying until 1945 when he was given a command of a Dakota Squadron in Burma, which is a military twin-engine transport plane. But he decided to stay in the services post-war. He was seconded to the Indian Air Force before he eventually became a group captain responsible for RAF Bomber Command in 1958. And he then became the station commander at RAF Scampton in Lincolnshire in 1960, which is the base famous for the, the dam busters. He then did a period of overseas. So in 1962, he was sent down to the Commonwealth Games in Perth in Australia, flying Vulcans. And he flew numerous fly paths for the opening and closing ceremonies of the Commonwealth Games. And on his return, 
he was given a CBE and he was made a senior air staff officer at uh, number three group headquarters. He kept on going up the scheme, basically. He became air executive to the deputy for nuclear affairs Mm -hmm. at the Supreme Allied Headquarters for the Powers in Europe in 1965 and then went on to be Air Officer Commanding in Chief of the RAF Support Command in 1970 which didn't last much longer in his time it was all rolled I think into Strike Command after then and he became Air Officer Commanding of 46 Group when he received his knighthood in 1971 and then he retired from the Royal Air Force eventually in 1973 but his role with the Air Force didn't end there with his retirement okay. uh, because he became a member of the Governing Council of the RAF Benevolent Fund and chairman of the board of management of Princess Marina House, which was an RAF residential home and convalescence home in Sussex. Interestingly, in 1987, a gentleman arrived in a wheelchair and asked if he was a chap called Burton. This was actually McFarlane, who had been his navigator when his Wellington had been shot down and the two hadn't seen each other for 47 years. Harry Burton, or Sir Harry Burton as we should call him, Air Marshal Sir Harry Burton, passed away on November the 29th, 1994, aged 75. To be fair, people have said of him that he was fairly reluctant to bring up his escape. And if anyone did bring up any reference to escape, he quickly changed the subject to other topics. There goes the story of Air Marshal Sir Harry Burton. I think a fabulous escape, full of information. And one that, as you say, there's there's a number of claims around it, which some we can disprove, some which are quite possible, mm. but certainly worthy of, of looking at for us. Well, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed that. If you'd like to subscribe, we're on Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, or indeed any of your favourite podcast platforms. Or you can find us on Twitter and Facebook by searching at F-Y-T-W-I-O. Or if you want to send us a more long-form message, you can email us at F-Y-T-W-I-O podcast at gmail.com.